I'm Larry Carroll in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles County District Attorney has just filed murder charges against Arinthal James O.J. Simpson in the murders of his ex-wife Nicole Brown Simpson and 25-year-old Ronald Coleman. Simpson was seen leaving his Brentwood estate by automobile a short time ago. He is expected to surrender to Los Angeles police for booking and arraignment shortly. Scheduled booking time and arraignment 11.30 p.m. Pacific time. To rewatch a movie. Oh, hell yeah! Hell yeah! Quick, quick, quick. Small break, Please don't aggregate this. Lillard, long range three. Their defense is atrocious. I'm sort of the rock star. Right on the cowboy! People! Tiso is the official watch of the NBA. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about aggregation. I'm oddly intrigued by neck tattoos. You know, we love China. We love the playing there. Oh, man. I'm sorry. sorry. It's just hit me right now. Shut up and listen. You think you're better than me? Hey! All right, we are back. Uh, this is Swish FM. Chris Wendelk and Ben Craw. Ben, our beloved New York Knicks, are tied two games to two. It's the NBA Finals in 1994. Uh, how you doing, man? How you feeling after that big victory the other day against the Rockets? Chris, um, yeah, wow. This is it. Here we are. June 17th, 1994. Um I got to be honest with you. I'm 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 pretty nervous. Uh, I it's I a daunting. Was, it's a daunting episode, huh? Yeah. Um, much like JJ Redick, I uh, self medicated uh, just before recording and chugged an entire liter of vodka. Did you to, really uh, know? to wow. calm my nerves? Yeah. You know, uh, um, take, taking after our our uh, our Godfather, our, our inspiration, JJ. Um, who, by the way, congratulations on 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 his big news. Uh, he's going to be starting a uh, a new podcast uh, network. We are flattered. We are thrilled for JJ. It means so much to us that we could inspire him. That we could inspire him to form a new business. Obviously, means the world to us. JJ, we tip our cap to you. We wish you nothing but the best. Go get him, you, kid. Yeah, just let us know if we can be a help. If mm-hmm. we can offer you any sort of advice. Um, but congrats to JJ and his business partner, Tommy Alter, Tommy. Uh, on their new uh, podcast business. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've been, it's something that, you know, obviously we've, we've been encouraging JJ to, JJ to do for a long time. Uh, so we couldn't be more thrilled for him, uh, that he, that he finally, uh, took our advice and is, uh, take the plunge, man. I mean, what do you have to lose, what, right? What was the New York times, uh, phrase, uh, broadening his, his range, Ex- like expands the, his range. Yeah. yeah. Broadens his range or something like that. Something um, like that. Yeah. Very, very. So apt. good. So good. Yep. Yeah, man. So it's funny. I mean, this is, I, I can already tell this is going to be a fucking long ass episode. So we yeah, this is going to be an it. absolute shit show. Let's but, just do it. But folks. Like you said, you know, this one is daunting, and I think in some ways, if we're both being honest, much of this uh, Knicks playoff rewatch really was about, in some ways, June 17th, 1994. I mean, it, you know, it was about the totality of the team mm-hmm. and the playoff run and, and what it meant to sort of revisit 
the the demons and the skeletons of of this series against the rockets but also in some ways i think we both know that june 17th and the experience of this game had like a formative place in our lives is that not true yeah i would say that's true and it's and, it, and i feel like in a weird way it became in the course of of doing this project of ours it became more of the sort of central focus um just organically like when we first started out i was like yeah i want to watch these games as a fun distraction and it was like okay i want to watch all of these games as a form of self-therapy to you know uh uh exercise my demons um and and you know face my fears yada yada and then with Your sort therapy, of just yeah yeah the course of of events over the past couple of months with the um you know murder of george floyd and the ensuing uh social justice movement civil rights movement protests in the streets it was like oh this is even more relevant now than we even sort of thought it was um and then we both kind of just gone back down the oj rabbit hole obviously <laughs> from anyone who's listened to this podcast for the past month um and so it it yeah i feel like it wasn't always our mission but it it like has become our mission and it's yeah. become just as important as all the other sort of reasons we started doing this in the first place absolutely all right ben here it is the date is june 17th 1994 mm. ben in in a in a few short hours the New York Knicks and Houston Rockets will be kicking off their pivotal Game 5 at Madison Square Garden in the NBA Finals. Like I, like I mentioned before, the series is tied 2-2. But before we get into the game, um, there are a few pivotal uh, key moments happening around the world, happening around the country. Many of them are actually sports-related. So let's catch you up real quick, Ben. Yeah, uh, as, as, as Marv Albert says towards the top of our broadcast... It's been a stirring sports day in New York. Yes. So we can start with um, Arnold Palmer is playing uh, his final round at the 1994 U.S. Open. You know, it's been 40 years. And uh, when you walk up the 18th and uh, you get an ovation like that. I guess that uh, says it all. He is regarded as one of the greatest golfers in the history of the sports. It's a momentous occasion, very emotional. You have Arnold Palmer, you know, weeping on the uh, on the on the fairway on the on the uh, on the greens at the U.S. Open. Historic event there. Mm-hmm. After a forty-year career, uh, obviously one of the most successful, decorated, famous golfers in history. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is um, the final final round he would he would uh shoot. Uh as a professional PGA golfer, of course he went on to the uh whatever they call the, the senior, senior tour. Yeah, the senior tour, yeah. Yeah. We also have the uh the nineteen ninety four FIFA World Cup, which is hosted for the first time in the United States. That's finally underway. June seventeenth, mm-hmm. nineteen ninety four. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, William Jefferson. My fellow Americans, citizens of the world, the United States is honored to play host to this magnificent celebration. 
The World Cup has captured the imagination of our country, as has the game itself in the last few years. The love of soccer is now a universal language that binds us all together. So I welcome all who have come from all countries and all continents and all who will watch these games in the United States for the next 30 days. Opening ceremonies. Opening ceremonies. Ben, there are nine satellite cities and host stadiums uh, used around the United States. All these arenas uh, needed to have a seating capacity of, a, of at least 53,000 people. So we have the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. We have the Stanford Stadium in Stanford, California. The Pontiac Silverdome in Pontiac, mm, Michigan. Giant wow. Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Uh, the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. Soldier Field in Chicago. Uh, the Citrus Bowl in Orlando. Foxborough Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts. And RFK Memorial Stadium in Washington, D.C. Mm. So, um, you know, major occasion. This is the first time that the United States is hosting the World Cup. And, uh, yeah, main, it, it, it's, it's a huge event. Um, you know, obviously soccer at this point is not... Uh, nearly as uh, huge of a sport in the United States as it is uh, today. So, you know, back in 1994, this was a huge deal. You have Oprah Winfrey at the opening ceremonies. Bill Clinton is speaking. So it's it's a real big deal. Mm -hmm. The New York Rangers, Ben, in New York City, are celebrating their win of the 1994 Stanley Cup Finals. There's a ticker tape parade on Broadway. What a day it was to be a New York Ranger fan. Diehards were out in full force nice and early. We were down here at like 8.30 waiting for this parade. We've been waiting 54 years, number one. And of course, if you couldn't get a spot down below, you could always capture the moment outside your office window. It was a smashing ticker tape parade, and fans of all ages were happy that the 54-year-old curse was finally history. Well, it's about time they won it, and I'm really glad because there's a lot of stress during the, uh, the series. I'm just glad they won it because I don't want to go through that again next year. God is good. God help them. An emotional outpouring, a catharsis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mayor Rudy Giuliani is uh, speaking at the the victory uh, parade. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Rangers, uh, you know, first Stanley Cup in 54 years. Right. Um, you know, for many fans, the, the, the first and, and only time they would see their uh, their team hoist the cup. Zuboff for the pass. Zuboff swings it around. Weimer clears the zone. That's it. 54 years of curses are over. No more 1940. Yes. The New York Rangers are going to win. It's 1.1 seconds on the clock. And Kevin we have Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr. ties Babe Ruth's record for the most home runs, 30 home runs before June 30th. It's the team's 65th game with the with the Seattle Mariners uh, in the 1994 MLB season. Of course, the, the players would go on strike. Well, it is now official. No more regular season, no extended version of the playoffs, and for the first time since 1904, no World Series, Brendan. Not pretty. Yogi Berra said it ain't over till it's over. He was talking about the 73 Mets. Now Yogi could say this one's definitely over. The World Series has been played on in the midst of two world wars, in the midst of the Depression era, but now in 1994, in the midst of the greed era in Major League Baseball, 
No World Series. No more baseball this year. First year without a World Series since 1904, I believe. I had hoped that tonight I would be coming out to tell you that baseball was coming back in 1995. And for a good while this evening, I thought that that might well be the case. Unfortunately, the parties have not reached agreement. The American people are the real losers. The major league cities, the spring training communities, the families of thousands of Americans who won't have work unless there's a baseball season, and of course the millions of fans who have waited now for six long months for the owners and the players to give us back our national pastime. In, uh, in basketball, it's game five of the 1994 NBA Finals between the Knicks and the Rockets, slated to start later tonight at Madison Square Garden. Now, Ben, like the, the last few episodes, we've been dealing with the events uh, in Los Angeles, California, surrounding the death, uh, the murder of O.J. Simpson's ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman. So they were killed on June 12th. Uh, It's now June 17th. They were killed on the 12th. And and Ben, at this point, the LAPD has named O.J. Simpson as a person of interest in the deaths of Ron and Nicole. So OJ's agreed to turn himself into police at the Parker Center at 11 a.m. Pacific time on June 17th, 1994. He had been actually formally charged with the, with the double murder. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Now, we've talked, Ben, uh, briefly about different characters in the OJ Simpson story. Um, but one of the key figures that we need to mention and sort of briefly discuss and give a little background on is Al Cowlings. Mm. AC. Ben, who is Al Cowlings? My name is AC. You know who I am, goddammit. You know who he is, goddammit. He was a close friend of O.J. Simpson's. He, uh, they'd known each other since childhood. They were teammates at USC. They actually played together on the Buffalo Bills and on the 49ers. Mm. Um, but an interesting nugget, an interesting note that I think we both sort of like did a double take when, when we first heard in the... Uh, ESPN documentary on OJ Made in America was Al Cowlings um, dated OJ Simpson's first wife named Marguerite. Mm-hmm. So while they were attending high school together at Galileo High School, Al and Marguerite were having some issues as a couple, and OJ kind of stepped in as a mediator. From that mediation and the discussion process, he actually formed a relationship with Marguerite, mm-hmm. and they would eventually go on to get married in 1967. And apparently AC was pretty upset, as you might imagine, at the time. But their their friendship sort of managed to prevail. And they, they remained close friends and uh, confidants over the years. And so much so that Al, Al Cowlings was the godfather of O.J.'s son, Simpson, or is the godfather of O.J.'s son, uh, Jason Simpson. And mm-hmm. he was a groomsman at O.J.'s wedding to Nicole Brown in February of 1985. So uh, AC was a big part of OJ's life. He was also the ring bearer uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at, at, at the wedding of mutual friends Robert and Kim, uh, Chris Kardashian's wedding in mm. July of 1978. So following the death of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman on June 12th, 1994, uh, OJ is named a person of interest Nicole Brown's funeral takes place at St. Martin of Tours Catholic Church in Brentwood on June 16th. Our top story at 4 o'clock, funeral services for the victims of a double murder. Both ceremonies were emotional farewells this afternoon. 
attended by hundreds of mourners. Out in Brentwood at Nicole Simpson's private service, many friends and family members embraced each other before entering a Catholic church that was filled to capacity. Meantime, Channel 4 News has learned that investigators are examining new key evidence that links O.J. Simpson to the crime. This, as Simpson's lawyer, calls on criminal defense experts for a second opinion about the killings. All this on a day when two funeral services served as the backdrop for an active murder investigation. Phil Schumann is standing by in Brentwood now and uh, has the latest. And uh, Phil, I guess you're outside Nicole's condominium, is that correct? That's correct, and no one knows who killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman outside this condo on Sunday night. No one knows why. We do know, of course, that it has caused an incredible amount of pain to all of those who knew them, and it has, of course, thrust O.J. Simpson, her ex-husband, into the media spotlight. He, one of the focuses of the investigation. All this is happening while earlier this morning, Nicole Brown Simpson was remembered at a church service not far from here. Under a hot morning sun, they gathered at St. Martin of Tours Church in Brentwood to mourn to remember Nicole Brown Simpson. Hundreds of mourners arrived. They walked into the church grounds on foot. They drove in in private cars. They came in limousines. O.J. Simpson's former attorney, Howard Weitzman, his current attorney, Bob Shapiro, former footballer, Bob Chandler, among many, all greeted by O.J. Simpson's close, close friend and former teammate, Al Cowlings. It was such a crowded scene, L.A. City traffic officers had to come in to control access from Sunset Boulevard. And then, a moment seemingly frozen in time, the hearse arrived with the funeral procession. Out of the back of one of the limousines, the two small Simpson children followed by O.J. Simpson himself, the mourning ex-husband, the grieving father, the focus of a murder investigation. He went into church holding hands with his children and family members. It was a private one-hour ceremony. As the program states, in loving memory of Nicole Brown Simpson, it included a poem by Alfred Tennyson, Crossing the Bar, it was called, Sunset and Evening Star, it began, and one clear call for me and may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. When the ceremony was over, family members and close friends left the church quickly, choosing not to talk with reporters about the service. Howard Weitzman, for example, not talking as he lived with his wife, escorted by a Los Angeles police officer. Others hugged outside the church, embraced, again, Simpson friend Al Cowling seemingly in charge, O.J. himself, with dark sunglasses on, again with his children, he spoke briefly to the priest. Moments later, with presidential-like security guards jogging by the side of his limo, the funeral procession sped off to the cemetery. It's actually Al Cowling's 47th birthday on that day. Jesus, uh, I did not realize AC, that. <laughs> yep, AC served as the gatekeeper, and he was a pallbearer at the funeral. So this mm. is a man that like knew Nicole very well, was very involved with her life, was very much a part of O.J. and Nicole's like, marriage and relationship. Um, so he was like a very visible person. Um, so this is now June 16th. That's the funeral the day before the Knicks and the Rockets are slated to play together. The next day, O.J. is named as a person of interest in the murder. Charges are pressed. He has agreed to turn himself into the Los Angeles Police Department at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And Ben, 
we get news that um, OJ has not yet turned himself in. That's right. 11 o'clock becomes 11.45. A special report from NBC News. We've uh, spoken several times today regarding this matter. This is David Gascon from the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, talking about the two counts of murder that have been filed against O.J. Simpson. ...which included interviews of dozens of witnesses, a thorough examination and analysis of the physical evidence, both here and in Chicago, sought and obtained a warrant for the arrest of O.J. Simpson, charging him with the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Lyle Goldman. Mr. Simpson, in agreement with his attorney, was scheduled to surrender this morning to the Los Angeles Police Department. Initially, that was 11 o'clock. It then became 11.45. Mr. Simpson has not appeared. The Los Angeles Police Department right now is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. Commander Gascon, didn't you have a tail on the suspect all the time? Were you watching him constantly? We're uh, not going to make any comments relative to the investigative efforts itself or anything else surrounding what has occurred since the beginning of the case. Well, how did you lose him? You asked the question. Would you like for me to answer? We have spoken to Mr. Shapiro. We have expressed our dismay, and uh, we have indicated to him that... Uh, that we expect to see Mr. Simpson immediately, if not sooner. You're going to have to hold it down one at a time, or I won't be able to hear you. Has Shapiro seen him today at all, Commander? Well, it's my understanding uh, that he has. Can you account for and why he's not can Mr. Shapiro account for why Mr. Simpson has not turned himself in? Well, apparently he cannot. Uh, he assured us and agreed to provide for this surrender, and that's not occurred. And it was delayed on several occasions, and it still has not occurred. And to the best of my knowledge, Mr. Simpson is out there somewhere, and we will find him. Uh, homicide investigations are complicated investigations. They require a tremendous amount of skill and patience by detectives. We have some of our absolutely best detectives on this case. They've been very methodical. They've done a tremendous job. Uh, they, they deserve to be complimented for their efforts. Uh, as I indicated, they're very complicated. There's no rush to judgment on these types of investigations. You have to keep an open mind. Uh, they are, as I indicated, uh, among the very best we have. And there is no preferential treatment. There has not been any preferential treatment. And uh, I think you will see with the commitment of department resources in pursuit of Mr. Simpson that he is a wanted murder suspect and we will go find him. David Gaskin, deputy chief. Yeah, he has a sort of seminal, kind of iconic press conference at this point uh, about OJ not reporting to turn himself in. At this point, the media, I would say, has realized that the OJ Simpson soap opera is now like a super story. Yeah. It's, It's becoming clear now that this is going to be not just a tragedy about 
you know, a beautiful woman and her friend who were tragically murdered, who were related to, you know, the, the sports icon, OJ Simpson. Now we're, now we're beginning to realize there's a very distinct possibility that OJ Simpson murdered them. Yes. So this is all transpiring kind of in real time on the news in front of us. And all these events in the sporting world are, are simultaneously happening. The world cup, um, you know, like I said, uh, 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 Arnold Palmer uh, retiring, um, the New York Rangers celebrating their Stanley Cup, Ken Griffey Jr., all, all of it, and the Knicks and the Rockets are slated to play. Mm-hmm. So we get word that um, that OJ hasn't reported to the police, and now he there there's a effectively like a manhunt for OJ Simpson. So this is all unfolding on real time, in real time on TV. At this point, uh, we get word from Robert Shapiro, OJ's lawyer, that OJ has written a letter. This morning at 8.30 a.m., I received a call at my home asking me to bring OJ Simpson in for the purpose of surrendering on a murder charge to Parker Center. I agreed to have him there by 11 o'clock, although I told them it would be very pressing for me because I had to get his doctors to notify him to perhaps to be there because of his very, very frail, fragile, and emotional state. At about 9.30, I arrived at a residence in San Fernando Valley where OJ was. I went in with his good friend, Robert Kardashian. He was just waking up, and I told him that I had been informed by the Los Angeles Police Department that he was being charged with first-degree murder in two deaths, that it was a special circumstance charge, and that we would have to surrender by 11 o'clock. I had arranged the following means of surrender with the commander of the Los Angeles Police Department. I was going to come down with Mr. Simpson in my car being accompanied by the psychiatrist, Dr. Fairstein, and by his good friend, Robert Kardashian. Because we were concerned about the potential for suicide, we were being followed by A.C. Cowlings, his lifelong friend, and Dr. Rob Heisinger. Sometime later in the morning, maybe a little bit, maybe past noon, I got a call from the commander of Los Angeles Police Department saying that we must now announce that O.J. Simpson is a fugitive. Where is he? I did not nor did anyone else to my knowledge tell OJ that the police were coming to take him into custody. He discovered for the first time that OJ was not present. Al Cowlings was not present. We are all shocked by this sudden turn of events. The letter was left for his good friend, uh, who's also on the legal team, uh, Bob Kardashian. This letter was written by O.J. today. To whom it may concern. First, everyone understand I had nothing 
to do with Nicole's murder. Unlike what has been written in the press, Nicole and I had a great relationship for most of our lives together. Like all long-term relationships, we had a few downs and ups. I think of my life and feel I've done most of the right things, so why do I end up like this? I can't go on. No matter what the outcome, people will look and point. I can't take that. I can't subject my children to that. This way, they can move on and go on with their lives. Please, if I've done anything worthwhile in my life, let my kids live in peace from you, the press. I've had a good life. I'm proud of how I lived. My mama taught me to do unto others. I treated people the way I wanted to be treated. Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. Thanks for making my life special. I hope I helped yours. Peace and love, OJ. Do you remember, do you remember like hearing, like I, I guess at this point, like what do you remember hearing? I gotta be honest. I don't. I, d- I don't remember the letter. Yeah, I I wasn't uh, following this at all in real time. Um, this is like no, in the middle I. of the the middle of the summer. Um, this is actually going to be a shocking revelation, Chris, uh, that I'm about to drop on you. But um, I'm 99 percent sure, if not 100 percent sure, that I did not actually watch Game Five of the 1994 NBA Finals live. What? What? Yeah. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, we can talk about it later. Um, uh, exactly why. I mean, it's just, a, uh, I had like a Boy Scout camping trip that night that mm-hmm. for some reason, like the th- there's definitely like parts of my memory that just don't add up. Like I don't, I don't actually understand how I could have, like how both my father and, and I, um, who was at the time probably just as, you know, committed a, a fan as I was, like sort of allowed, uh, like I guess we like taped it and we were gonna like watch it the next day, like the next sure. morning. Um, we did a lot of that back then. The VHS, you know, set the the VCR, watch it the next day. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I I didn't watch it live, and I certainly was not following the OJ story in real time. I was like young enough at that point that I had seen him in Naked Gun, but I didn't really. He didn't mean anything to me as like. That makes a personality sense. as a famous person. I was just like, oh, yeah, O.J. Simpson. But I was just young enough where I was just like, that's a news story. The news is boring. I want to go outside and play basketball or I want to go play Super Nintendo. Um, yep. I was, I was like, not about to, like, turn on fucking CNN. Uh, no, no, no. no <laughs> you know, I was 10, 11, year, uh, t- uh, 11 years old at the time. I, I am kind of right there with you, actually. Like, I definitely watched the game live, um, and I distinctly remember watching it live. But as far as OJ at this point, I mean, granted, we're probably five, yeah, five days into the incident, you know, five days after Nicole and Ron have been murdered at this point. Mm -hmm. I certainly wasn't like 
Yeah, I certainly wasn't like watching the news or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I wasn't like glued I, to the like trying to like hardly. find developments in the next day's newspaper and stuff. Also, just... we were 10 12, and 12 years old, 11 years old. Like it right. was just not, you know, <laughs> yeah. And it was our summer vacation. So we were going to be like at camp or playing basketball and stuff like that. Yeah. Also, but, June 17th was a Friday. Mm, so, you know, I don't know. Yes. Friday night. Right, sure. Um, yeah. I will say that I was definitely like aware. I, I definitely knew that OJ Simpson's ex-wife and this guy, there was this horrible murder. I certainly didn't suspect that he was guilty of the crime or anything like that. Um, and I did watch it happen live, but I, mm. I don't, for instance, remember this Kardashian letter, uh, the letter uh, being read by Bob Kardashian. Right. Cause that press um, conference where they read the letter, was it like two o'clock during the, like in, in the afternoon, something like that, like in the middle of the day. Right. Which was East coast time, uh, five o'clock. Right. Right. Yeah. So. so at that point the game is happening in a couple of hours. It's just like not really on my mind, but mm-hmm. it was on the mind of the NBC broadcast crew. Yes. So yeah. like when we turn on the game, when we tune into the game, this is already a topic of conversation. And yes. Ben and I have both watched the ESPN. We just both rewatched today the ESPN 30 for 30 um, documentary called uh, June 17th, 1994. And what's great about that doc is like you could see and hear uh, all of the you know, neuroses and nervous energy of all the people involved with the broadcast about how to handle the sensitivity and, and nature of what was happening. Is, all right, is Brokaw going to send it to me? Why don't you have him not send it to me? There's no transition. I tried it. it. It sounds so callous. I think it has to be no choice but to proceed with the coverage of the game. And we will do that as we'll join Marv Albert and Matt Gukas after these messages. And you have to insert a commercial. You just got to, I don't know when you're going to come to me on camera. Yeah, but I've already said I'm Bob Costas. Let me just, let me go back. It's down to a best two out of three now. Before midnight tonight, somebody will move to the verge of a championship. There's the pink elephant in the room. Just talk about, like, we know this thing is happening in the world and we don't want to, like, leave you in the dark. Right. And obviously this was, like, pre-cell phones and pre-internet. So, you know, and also, like, pre-cable, like, pre-explosion like explosion of cable news. Right. So CNN was, no... was, CNN existed, but it wasn't, like, you know, right. the, the most popular, like, you know, it was the only, there was no MSNBC, there was no Fox News, right. there was no... Um, there was, like, one NBC network, so it's, so like, like they, they have, like, one lane in which to broadcast uh, content, so it's, like, right. they're either going to put the basketball game on the news, or they're going to put the basketball game on, on, on Channel 4, or they're going to put the OJ uh, chase on Channel 4. Right. Um, so... Yeah, man. All right, let's hop into it. So, real, real quick though, mm-hmm. just for for anyone who hasn't seen this documentary, uh, June seventeenth, nineteen ninety four. It was uh, released back in two thousand and ten. It's a one of the, the thirty for thirty docs. You know, we shit on uh, ESPN a lot as a company, um, and uh, and they've obviously been responsible for a lot of uh, you know terrible things on on television uh, and in the media. But I gotta say, this is one of the great pieces of documentary filmmaking I've ever watched in my entire life. It is. 
for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, constructed entirely of archival material. There's no, from the beginning of the documentary to the end, there's no voiceover, there's no narration, there's very little text on screen. It just starts in the very beginning of the day and ends at the very end of the day, and it's just a chronological um, archival uh, montage of of what happened in sports that day. Um, and it is so incredibly edited. I want to uh, give a shout out to the, um, the editor whose name is Andy Grieve. Um, it was directed by Brett Morgan. Um, it was kind of actually the documentary that planted the seed for the eventual uh, six-part uh, OJ Made in America. Six part or eight part? I always forget. Six six part? Uh, I think Made it's five parts, five eight part. hours. That's right, that's right. Um, yeah, the OJ Made in America documentary um, was, was the sort of genesis for that was this documentary, June 17th, 1994. Uh, yeah, it's incredible for anyone um, who didn't, you know, who wants to like relive that day. Like there is no better document uh, than, than this, um, than this thing. So just want to give a quick shout out to, uh, to that film, um, yeah, dude. And, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna say, like, it, I, I, I don't think it meant to be, but the film largely is an OJ film, like, with, mm-hmm. I, w- w- without meaning to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just the reality is the day OJ won the day. You know, right? What I, I mean, OJ, like, right? That story permeated the entire day, like from the very beginning of the day. There's like you know, news footage of like, oh, where is he? Is he leaving that house? Oh, no, this is his relative. Like, to yeah. the, obviously the very end of the day, it, it all, you know, we, we'll, we'll it shouldn't have been, all, all it, ends, it shouldn't but. have been that because there were so many other things happening, so many right. other incredible things happening. Right. But for better or for worse, like it became a day that will always be OJ's in, in the history books. Um, so we're going to try to talk about the Knicks Rockets game here, but you know, like we just said, OJ, won the day, stole the day. And um, I I kept feeling like that I felt like a theme or like an overarching feeling throughout that documentary. And I, I felt it so deeply while watching this game, Ben, was just how surreal this whole incident and yep. event felt. And I know that sounds like so obvious and like general and unspecific, but all I can say is like, it it felt very surreal to be watching a basketball game, much in the way, frankly, it feels very surreal to me to be watching basketball today. Yeah, wow. Um, that's It's something shit. I actually started thinking about towards the end of the film, which was like, this actually reminds me a lot of how I feel like when I see Zion Williamson and the Pelicans on TV, like playing the fucking like utah jazz i'm like yeah why are we why is this on tv like why are we pretending to care about this like it's not there are much graver more important things happening um and i that's such a fucking good point from the broadcasters to the players to the fans in the arena everyone was like that day everyone was kind of like uh, fuck, I guess we have to do this, but like... We don't want to. Yeah, like this feels silly. <laughs> yeah, and I I've, I, kind of have tried to table this conversation as much as possible for like when we have an episode about this, but <laughs> mm-hmm. it's obviously like kind of spilling over, but like I, 
I have had the feeling since the bubble NBA bubble has resumed where, you know, I've tuned in for a couple of games, not even full games, but just pieces of games, mostly just to kind of like see how it makes me feel, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I have to say, like, I don't really feel much. Like, I don't feel, and I mean that in like a bad way. Like, I don't, I don't right. feel entertained. I <laughs> yeah. don't feel distracted. You don't, you don't I'm feel not, excitement. You don't feel relief. You don't feel joy. I'm not in any less of a way, like less aware of what's happening in the world and if anything i'm actually much more aware of what's happening in the world when i watch zion williamson on tv and and, yeah uh, i i don't judge zion or any of the players for participating this is not me like you know like wagging my finger at them or anything it's just more like it's funny sometimes how like the absence of judgment or like the absence of like discretion or something can really like kind of poke you in the eye and i i do think that's what is currently happening with the nba and in a weird unintended way that is what was happening in 1994 with oj and this whole incident unfolding during the nba finals where it was like wow i'm suddenly aware that this basketball game is not what's important even though i really want it to be the important thing and i I feel the same way about the league right now like i i I really want to be entertained but unfortunately the circumstances of the world don't allow me to feel distraction or i i don't feel my anxiety is not quelled like i have no sense of relief you know Um, yeah because the state of the world is what it is so yeah that's just the reality of the situation. God, that's such a fucking good point. I didn't didn't even really make that connection like uh, sort of overtly like in my head, but you're totally right. It is. It's it feels yeah, it feels like a weird uh like you know, sort of dream dream state of yeah. a regular basketball game, which is what is happening right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we begin the broadcast here, Ben, and mm. we start with that soft piano music in the opening montage narrated by (sighs) Bob Costas, man. A different time, a very different team, celebrated and beloved, their achievements unduplicated in the ensuing two decades of Nick basketball. Pat Riley was brought to New York because he had experienced what his Nick players had not, and for three years he has coaxed as much as coached, motivated as much as maneuvered, convincing his team to share his vision. He was in their place once, unproven. The players already with championship credentials, not the coach, but together they achieved sustained greatness. Now he is the standard against which others are measured, yet his own standards are higher still. He expects victory, even though the circumstances are so much different than they once were. Instead of showtime glitz, He relies now on crunch time grit. With artistry and short supply, he shows his players he believes in them when so many others do not. It appears the guy on the other side of the table holds the superior hand. Home court advantage, the best player, the favored team. But if the Knicks hold an ace, perhaps it is Riley himself. 
It is unlikely these Knicks will ever be as revered as their predecessors, but it is also unlikely anyone else could have brought them to this point. is the NBA on NBC. I got weepy, man. This is like <laughs> this is like pretty moving stuff here. They you, they have the banners of uh, you know of the last Knicks championship hanging from the rafters at Madison Square Garden. You have footage mm-hmm. of Pat Riley pumping his fist, firing up the troops. And I got misty-eyed here, man. It's also interesting that um, <clears throat> I think, as we've discussed in the past, these NBC, NBA on, on NBC finals intros, playoff intros, would be narrated by like kind of a, a rotating cast. So sometimes it would be Marv Albert, sometimes it would be I think Tom Hammond did it often. Sometimes it would be Bob Costas. And for Game Five of the '94 NBA Finals, it was Costas who was narrating. Um, and I feel like he, out of all of the broadcasters sort of struggled the most with um because he was sort of the guy that was responsible for being like you know the 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 mediator for the audience kind of like the you know the host of uh, of the game but also like the liaison between Marvin and Matt Gukas and Tom Brokaw you know uh uh back in the in the news division um and uh, in the file that we watched of the game, we don't have... We, it just starts out with the NBA on NBC, uh, you know, sort of VO intro, the narration. Um, but we don't get, like, the actual beginning of the broadcast, um, which in the June 17, 1994 documentary, you can see. And Bob Costas um, does, in fact, like, kind of... Uh, frame it all uh, with the with the OJ news and, and he's like hello everyone I'm Bob Costas it is our professional obligation to cover the ball game tonight we will do that in what we hope is an appropriate fashion we are of course mindful of the OJ Simpson situation and we will apprise you of any new development well it's been a stirring sports day in New York and then he's clearly like as we'll we'll mention uh, after the uh, the intro and it, and it goes back to him he's like clearly like very shaken and like um and like he's affected like i think it's it's like very visible um when when they cut back to him on camera uh that he's like not in a good state (laughs) um so i just thought it was interesting that that he was the one that that actually obviously the the vo narration for the for the game was probably recorded you know day ago or two days prior to uh to the game broadcast but um anyway that was interesting yeah dude he seemed totally out of sorts yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's really interesting when you see these like behind the scenes documentaries to understand, you know, what performers these guys actually are, like how, yeah. like they are like truly seasoned performers in that they just sort of like, okay, I'm just going to pretend like, I'm just going to like put my blinders on to like the rest of the world and just like focus on this game here. And, uh, this was obviously very difficult for, um, Bob Costas to do. Yeah, the thirty for thirty doc has some incredible footage, like off, like kind of before they go, they went to air, where Costas is like arguing with his producer, like through the through his headphones and like or through his microphone, and you know they're they're like trying to figure out like in real time, like this is live television, and they're like trying to like figure out like how the fuck are we supposed to do this? And he's like very panicked, and obviously like OJ is 
not just a news story, like these, all of these uh, people um, at NBC were close friends of his, <laughs> you know, like yep. this was a, a news story about not a celebrity, but a friend of theirs. This is the Old Spice NFL Live postgame report brought to you by Old Spice Fragrance and Deodorant. Welcome back to the postgame show. Now, Bob, we want you to sit back and relax and enjoy this. I am not a party. <laughs> as many of our viewers already know, this is Bob's ninth and final season as host of NFL Live. When we started doing the show, it wasn't even called NFL Live. It was NFL 84. Nowadays, it's an Emmy award-winning show. But in the beginning, it had a somewhat looser format. That is a, um, a vital Shakespearean component of all of this, which mm-hmm. is NBC. Yeah. Like, this, this would be a different story... If this was happening on ABC, this would be a different story if it was on ESPN or CBS or any other network. But like the fact that the NBA Finals is on NBC, the broadcast network that employed OJ Simpson, NBC Sports, the broadcast network that employed OJ Simpson during the NFL season, it's like these guys were all colleagues. You know, mm-hmm. this 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 would be as if Marv Albert was accused of murder or something. You know what I mean? It's like the, it is the gigantic pink elephant in the room, which is that their colleague is now the center of a media, like soap opera and, and, and criminal investigation. And he is the lead suspect, the primary suspect in a horrific double homicide, like a unimaginable, unimaginable double homicide. We're not yeah. talking about like an accidental death. I mean, this is a grisly, brutal uh, murder. So um, it's, it's everyone is just sort of shook and appalled and they're trying to work through that yeah. and broadcast and, a and, basketball game. And he's now on the run from the law whereabouts currently unknown. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, we should also say, um, we we haven't said it at at this till this point, but he wrote a suicide letter like that. that yeah, it, he he didn't just leave a letter to Robert Shapiro to read to the media. That's he, right. Yeah, he he left a suicide note for Robert Shapiro to read. Which by uh, now, by the time of the of the game beginning, has uh, is like public knowledge. You know, like that press conference with Shapiro and Kardashian happened. You know, earlier in the afternoon. <clears throat> so not only is he on the run from the law, but people are like, we don't know if he's still alive. Yes. And also you're seeing his friends on camera grapple in real time with the, you know, the optics of like, what does it mean when someone is the prime suspect in a murder when they all of a sudden are writing a suicide note and they're on like, they're, they're fleeing from law enforcement. Like yeah. it, it probably signals some degree of guilt, some degree of like psychic weight and 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 fear. So they're the, these guys, Marv uh, Costas, they are trying to process all of this stuff in real time on television and entertain an audience of American sports fans, which is just yeah. wild. Yeah. Um. So. On that note, we will try to do the same. We will try to also <laughs> uh, just 
watch the game and talk yeah. about the game and pretend that the game is somehow more relevant than what what is happening in the world. Now, um, for the record, uh, to clear up any misunderstanding, we are not close personal friends of O.J. Simpson's, uh, Chris and I. Um, uh, I personally have never met met, met the guy, so I can't quite put myself on the same level as a as a Bob Costas or a Marv Albert. But yep. but right, our our mission our mission is the same. So in the pregame here, Ben, a uh, couple notes. First, Marv's hair is absolutely <laughs> fluffy tonight. My God, um, I, I made note of that. We also find out that Robert Ori is good to go after a scary hip injury. He's back in the starting, starting lineup, starting the game, which was shocking to me. Incredible. Uh, on the on uh, that that note of of Marv's hair, he does note at the top that it is a hot and humid ninety two degree day here in New York City. So perhaps that had something to do with his the um, with the with the volume. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. The uh, the Knicks starting lineups, you know, always just incredible, man. To hear to hear the starting lineups called, see the laser light show, always very mm-hmm. special for us. off and who else but Derek Harper gets us on the court early. Smith all over Harper here at the start. Harper fires and hits. He nicks out to a 2 nothing lead. Yeah, Harper right off the dribble, a little uh, James Harden-esque uh, step back, still very much feeling himself. Patrick blocks Hakeem cleanly. He chases down the, uh, the loose ball and pushes Vernon Maxwell. Kind of a cheap ticky-tack foul, but Patrick called for the early foul here. Um, Harper with another incredible ball fake. Oh, the, that fast layup. break. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oakley for Harper. Lars Oakley had 20 rebounds the other night. Harper with a beautiful ball fake. What a move by Jared Harper. Looking like fucking, I don't know, like, Rajon Rondo out there, he fakes it so hard uh, as he's driving towards the basket that uh, Kenny Smith literally jumps out of his way, uh, and and Harper just glides effortlessly to the hoop, putting the Knicks up zero four uh, four to zero. God, what a move, man! He just glides yeah, that was the like paint. gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kenny Smith answers with a three. Otis Thorpe sneaks inside for a bucket. It's 5-4, Houston. Yeah, I mean, I feel like <laughs> you and I both, it, it's not easy to, to just watch this game and, and like yeah, y- be focused. Know, but the, the difficult thing here is that unlike, you know, unlike the experience of watching this game the first time and unlike the players who are playing this game for the first time, we have the benefit of hindsight or yeah. in this case, the curse of hindsight. So it can be a little hard to focus when we know what's coming. 
But just general mood of the game, you know, it's it's pretty close. Oakley drains a jumper. The score yep. is ten to seven. The, the Back Knicks and forth. are up by three with about six minutes left. Um, Starks hits a three. Uh, oh no, it's not a three. It's a two. Now the mm. Knicks are up twenty to fourteen. Three minutes left in the first. Thorpe finds Ori. Uh, makes it 20 to 16 with about two minutes left. Hakeem gets on the board. It's 22 to 18. Right before the Hakeem basket, uh, Harper pops off a, a screen for for an easy uh, jumper. And uh, Marv Albert says, quote, Derek Harper to this point has been the most viable player of the finals. He has put together three terrific games. And I just wrote, thank you, Marv. I 100% agree. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, think about that. Patrick Ewing versus league MVP, Hakeem Olajuwon. He didn't say the most valuable Dude, player for the, for the Knicks. He said the most valuable player of the finals, <laughs> Derek yeah. Harper. I mean, look, you know, obviously, you know, you can play the what-if game and whatever, and uh, things would always be radically different. But imagine if the Knicks won the finals, imagine, like, how we would glorify Derek Harper. Like imagine if Derek Harper oh, he would was be like the John an absolute legend. Yeah. If Derek Harper was like the, the Paul O'Neill or the Derek Jeter of like, you know, New York basketball war. Yeah, but, um, totally. Funny how it works. Yep. Um, anyways, the first quarter ends 22 to 21. The Knicks are up by a point. It's, you know, it's an even game. Mostly the crowd is just, you know, going bananas. The mm-hmm. obviously super important game. Yeah, of um, course. As we've noted, it was just uh, earlier that morning that they had the ticker tape parade in the uh, Canyon of Heroes for the Rangers. Yes. So the crowd is, you know, very very excitable at this point. Derek Harper's off to a good start uh, at the end of the first quarter here. So he's three of five for six points, three assists. To begin quarter two, Ben, coming out of the commercial break, Marv begins with talking about Anthony Mason. <laughs> Well, it was a rocky regular season at times for Anthony Mason, but it has certainly turned positive in the playoffs. Now, this was the scene back on April 19th at Madison Square Garden. Anthony Mason sitting on the bench the entire second half of a Knicks loss against Atlanta. He was benched. Mason had expressed his displeasure in the media, questioning Pat Riley's offensive decisions. And this, as you can imagine, extremely upsetting to Riley, who then suspended Mason for the last three regular season games for what was turned conduct detrimental to the team. But then going right down to the deadline, Riley did reinstate Mason in time for the playoffs. We discussed this with Pat Riley. The Anthony Mason uh, situation was a real critical point for our team. And... uh, not from the standpoint that uh, that Mace, you know, was suspended. Uh, and it really wasn't about that. Uh, it was about, you know, bringing him back to the team. Uh, I did not want to hold the team hostage. Uh, Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, you know, the veteran players that wanted to win a championship. Uh, I did not want to hold them hostage to a disciplinary decision that could really cost them. Uh, the manpower that we needed to win. I j- the whole like authoritarian like yeah. coach player relationship is so unreal. Yeah, this player this this player voiced displeasure at uh, being be- benched for an inferior player. I must discipline him. Like it was just like an absolutely yeah like iron fist it's uh, funny. mentality. Yeah, dude, it's funny how like we say things have changed and how 
they still really haven't changed. Like we, even now we talk about how it's like, Oh, it's the the player empowerment era. Right. And this guy, Jamal Adams, the safety for the jets just got traded away. He's like an all pro player for the jets just got traded away in this very like high profile way for this exact same thing. He criticized really? the coach. Yeah, he criticized the coach of the Jets. Basically, it, it it was about money. Like he he I mean, he's an all-pro player uh and he wanted to get paid and management made him a promise that they were going to pay him and they didn't do it. And then so he just he went to the New York Daily News and like publicly criticized the coach and the next day they traded him to the <laughs> Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> But it's, awesome. just, it, it's just funny, man. Like, it, we really haven't stopped this, like, sort of nonsense, like this, like, authoritarian nonsense. Mm-hmm. Riley is interviewed here, and he says, the Anthony Mason situation was a real critical point for our team. I didn't want to hold the team hostage. Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, you know, the players that want to win a championship. I didn't want to hold <laughs> them hostage to a mm-hmm. disciplinary decision that could cost them uh, the manpower that we needed to win. Yeah. And Ben, my only thought was, dude, that is some fucking Mamba mentality shit right Oh, there. yeah, baby. Yep. Do we love that or what? Yeah, to be clear, Anthony Mason is not a human being with agency. He is just a tool, a means to win a championship. So um, because we we need him simply for his on-court contributions, uh, he can he can come back, even sure. though he knows he's a bad boy and uh, and he's in the doghouse. Um, but it's only because we got to win that win that ring for, win for ring, Patrick man. for Patrick and Oakley. Yes, that uh, we'll, we'll for, let him out of his bedroom. And for those loyal fans, Ben, they've waited long mm. enough. Of course, um, yes, Sam Cassell hits a jumper and makes it 24-23. Knicks are up by one. There's about ten minutes and twenty-seven seconds left. In the second quarter, Ewing. Getting a rest on the back. Here's Anthony. Ewing with a spectacular windmill stop. With a massive, spectacular windmill mm. jam. Mm. I mean, yeah. flying in off the offensive rebound off yeah. of this Derek Harper jumper. Wow, man. This is poster material. 26-23 Knicks, 10 minutes One of my left. favorite plays in basketball, the tip dunk. Yeah, and this was a an absolutely spectacular one, yeah. Mario Mario Ely then responds with an open three on the other end. Uh, Chris, pop quiz. Uh, do you know where uh, Mario Ely is from? Gosh, I mean, could he be from... 26, 23, next. Ely opens for the three. And he's tied the game at three. Mario Ely, a New York City product. Yeah, yep, you nailed it. Actually, wow. a little bit of trivia. Uh, you might not realize it, but Mario Ely... Is in fact a New York City product. If, uh, only someone, if only someone would talk about it on the broadcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had never heard that before myself. But, yeah, brand uh, yeah, interesting, new. It's totally interesting. Little, things. yeah, forgotten bit of history there. Carl Herrera floating one hand jumper. It's now twenty eight twenty eight. Nine minutes left. Herrera again gets inside. He's now becoming a menace at this point. Yeah, seven points. Suddenly he is like the weird random bench guy that becomes a superstar in the middle of an NBA Finals game. Flips the switch, yeah. So now it's 30 to 28. Houston's up by two. Um, Mason squares up a jumper, evens it out, 30 to 30. And then Mason takes it over. Mason bullies his way again back inside. It's 32-30. 
Yeah, anytime Olajuwon was on the bench, Mason would just bowl inside and just like like no one could contain him. No, like he was just unstoppable. Like a fucking suddenly he was like Boogie Cousins in the paint. Um, anytime Olajuwon wasn't wasn't out there, um, I feel like his eyes just like widened as soon as he uh, saw him go to the bench. So, and then yep. fucking Carl Herrera again, dude. Thirty-two again. all. Yeah, yeah. He has now, nine points. He's the high man in the entire game. <laughs> the leading scorer. Marv notes yeah. that Herrera, I guess, is the first Venezuelan player in the NBA. Um, Oakley gets the roll. Uh, it's thirty-four, thirty-two. Mason snatches a rebound, sprints the ball up the court, takes it to the rim, gets called for the oh, gets called for the charge. But God, man, that I know. just seeing that is worth the price of admission. I would take it every time. Like I know, I know. Yeah, just dude. rebound, just head full of steam. He's dribbling between his legs. Um, yeah, drives in. It's just like seeing a bull, like just like seeing like like a bull run yeah. in space. It's just a bull who's able to dribble a basketball between his legs at full speed. And then, um, and then it happens, man. Here it is. We are looking at live pictures of Interstate 5 in Los Angeles. We believe that that white vehicle, which is being trailed by a phalanx of California Highway Patrol cars and helicopters, belongs to Al Cowlings, who disappeared with O.J. Simpson earlier today. Shortly after Mr. Simpson was informed that he was going to be formally charged with the murder of his wife and the young man who was with her at the time. It is the latest bizarre development in a string of bizarre and shocking developments that have been going on all day long. Without any sort of an introduction, Ben, there is suddenly a white Ford Bronco on the screen. We are yeah. looking at helicopter footage of a white Ford Bronco driving on a, uh, a freeway, a highway, yep. and um, it's obviously being trailed by a news helicopter camera crew. We hear the voice of Tom Brokaw. We are looking at live pictures of Interstate 5 in Los Angeles. We believe that white vehicle, which is being trailed by a phalanx of California Highway Patrol cars and helicopters, belongs to Al Cowlings, who disappeared with O.J. Simpson earlier today. Shortly after, Mr. Simpson was informed today that he was going to be formally charged with the murder of his wife and the young man who was with her at the time. Brokaw mentions a suicide letter from OJ. I can't go on. And then, dude, he just fucking throws it back to Mom. Earlier today, uh, we heard a letter from OJ Simpson written to the general public in which he said, I can't go on. And his lawyer described it as a suicide note. We'll uh, bring you up to date uh, on this situation if a resolution is reached with all the continuing developments. Now, let's go back to Marv Albert in the playoff game, Marv. Thank you, Tom. 5.57 remaining in this first half. Mario yeah. Ellie. Yeah, it's only about uh, two, two and a half minutes of uh, real-time uh, video here. Um, and then we return back to Marv at the game. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> so at this point in my notes, I just, I, I, I'm like, I, I really can't process anything regarding basketball after what we just saw. Yeah. Uh, I know the Knicks are up by three or something, but like, I'll, I'll be honest with you, man. My analysis of this game, my notes, my memories—it's just very scattershot. Like, my—I—I I just had a very hard time focusing. Uh, yeah. 
on basketball after this. Like I just sort of lost, even as like a podcast guy, even as like <laughs> a podcast host and producer guy, I was suddenly no longer compelled to like write detailed notes about the game. And I, I was just sort of trying to process like, holy shit, like how is this making me feel? And like, what, what do I remember about this? And I know like yeah. we, we have talked offline. Um, you know, we, we found a stream uh, that we downloaded off the internet here that in, in that, that has a, that, that fully cuts away from the game. Right. So there, there are sort of two, there are sort of two incidents that happen over the course of the game, with regard to uh, with regard to this OJ incident, the first is a uniform cutaway from the basketball court, and I think everyone in the country who is watching this had the same uh, experience. And then, for some of us on the East Coast, during the second uh, OJ incident, they went picture in picture. Right. But that, that is not that the is stream. Not, yeah, that is yeah, not that, the broadcast that we, that, that we downloaded and, and rewatched. But and alas. I know that you and I have both like searched high and low for that picture in picture version of the um, of yeah. the game, but I couldn't find it anywhere. No. And it's so weird. It exists. It was just very hard to concentrate on the game after right. like, knowing like that that was what was happening in the world <laughs> right that that's what was happening and also just in terms of like re-watching the game you know currently uh it, it, there was like suddenly i mean this was true from the very beginning um since i didn't remember exactly you know the timing and how everything played out with the broadcast i knew that like at some point it would be like that's why we wrote in our notes and here it is or and then it happened we knew it was coming and then suddenly there it is and it's like then we go back to the game and it's like okay well when are they going to cut back so the yeah, entire time like, you're just thinking just, like i can't just when go is... back to enjoying this now like right um, now you're like, like at some uh, point they're going to cut back and then like when does that happen i don't really remember exactly like did they have the entire second half like blocked out and then it's also just so weird that the that we're watching this, um, you know, this this one kind of version of the broadcast because all the different sort of you know network affiliates, local stations, kind of did it, did it their own way. Um, so I definitely had a, even though, as I said, I didn't watch this game in real time. Maybe I maybe I watched it uh, the the VHS tape like the next day, or maybe I just remember like clips of it on on tv like in my in my like local market but i i have a distinct memory of the picture in picture um and and then in this one that we're in this file that we got um even though it's the nbc new york broadcast i'm pretty sure because at one point chuck scarborough cuts in for like a like a news four update um who if you don't know that's a new york uh, uh local news guy um it it did full full cuts away uh, full cutaways uh, rather um, it didn't do picture in picture or split screen at any point so I was like wait did I just totally no. misremember this did I no, like you dream not, this you absolutely did not invent that because I had the exact same experience too yeah. I'm pretty sure the first cutaway is what everyone got like a right. full hard cutaway like a two right. minute cutaway we leave the game and then we come back. And I'm almost certain that the second the second um, experience uh, yeah. was a picture-in-picture thing. I, I basically think like 
the second time around, the yeah. local networks had more discretion on how they wanted to present the broadcast. Right, right. Some did a full cutaway. Others did a picture-in-picture where the basketball was silenced and you right. had the audio of what was happening. Right. So either way, the audio, you had you had Brokaw um, and, and his various reporters uh, providing the audio. And, but in some cases, there was still a little box, a very small box, like not even a split screen. We're talking like, you know, a quarter of the screen down in the lower right corner with the Knicks game basically on mute. And then the entire rest of the screen and the audio was the OJ coverage. Um, but then in the in the version that we watched off of YouTube, it was no box even. It was just a full cutaway for a large portion uh, of the uh, of the second half. So, um, dude, I have a couple of details I want to share, like, over the course of this thing. I, I learn about, like, new stuff about this all the time. Yeah. But one of the things I just found out was that Play like so, like we said, there were there were, this is pre-internet, pre-cell phone, right? Mm-hmm. So th- theoretically, there was no way for players and people in the arena to know what was happening. Mm-hmm. But Kenny Smith said that during a timeout, um, players would peer over to the broadcast booth because there was all this attention being focused at at the broadcast booth on a TV, right? And Kenny Smith and Matt Matt Bullard actually goes on yep. record saying that uh, he like peered over to see what everyone was like talking about, and he was like, "That's weird. There there seems to be some sort of car commercial on the TVs. <laughs> like, why aren't they showing the game? It would be yeah. logical to have like the game that they're broadcasting on the little TV monitors. Like, why are yeah, they showing?" Ford- why are they showing this white Ford Bronco commercial? That's like strange. Ford must have really ponied up the bucks for the uh, for the full third quarter length uh, Ford Bronco commercial in sure. uh, Game Five of the, of the '94 Finals. Yeah. So um, Kenny Smith said that players started like peering over and understanding what was happening, and they started saying like, "No, that's OJ. OJ's on the run." Because again, this is now in the consciousness of the players before the game, and. You know, like OJ is a peer for for many of these guys. You know, he's a sports icon, so there was obviously a lot of interest in like what was happening with his case, and now they're putting it together. They realize like that's OJ, the guy, the the guy, the, the Ford Bronco on TV. Like that's that's OJ escaping from the police. Right. Matt Bullard said Kenny Smith once told me that Rudy Tomjanovich asked the players during a timeout what they were doing looking at a TV screen in the middle of the NBA Finals. Kenny Smith goes, I go in the huddle, and I'm like, OJ's on the run. And uh, Rudy Tomjanovich comes into the huddle, and he goes, what are you guys doing? And he goes, OJ's on the run. Rudy Tomjanovich drew up a play, and as the players were walking back into the court after the timeout, Rudy Tomjanovich pulls Kenny Smith aside, and he goes, is he really on the run? And yeah. <laughs> so he's like, that's how we found out about it. Yeah. Um, fucking insane like another over at the fucking tv monitor yeah uh yeah some other tidbits uh you know marv and matt gukas have 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 talked about it a lot in, in interviews over the years but they noted how um yeah for like large portions of like the the second half fans were just um some fans were emptying out of the stands and going into the um you know, going into the hallways, yes. the corridors, um, where there were TVs that they could watch. Like Other out by fans, the concession stands, right? Yeah, exactly. Like in the middle of like fucking Game Five NBA Finals, two-two series, 
fans were leaving their seats to go watch televisions in in the corridors um and other fans were gathered around the scorers table because they had uh TVs like you know other other fans were like were were going down you know to the to the bottom rows to gather around just wherever there was like a monitor where they could see what was happening yep um another tidbit i i read from uh a great article from sports broadcast journal um last year they um they write, uh, quote, before the game with OJ's whereabouts unclear, NBA commissioner David Stern asked NBC sports head Dick Ebersol to stick with coverage of the game. Ebersol, though, watched the game on a small screen at the Garden with an early generation cell phone pinned to his ear. He was on with NBC News president Tom Lack. Um, and later in the article, it says NBC basketball announcers were told, quote, do the game, but be ready for anything. They were also ordered not to comment on anything except the game. It was bizarre, Gukas remembers. You had a sick feeling. It was very unnatural. Um, and then it says, yeah, some of NBC's affiliates broke away from the game for dedicated updates. Others provided Simpson coverage and ran the game on an uneven split screen. Understandably, NBC's Los Angeles affiliate broke away from the game entirely. Um, so, yeah, just so... Again, like it, it, live television, like everyone was just like, f- just figuring it out on the fly, and like no yeah. one had any idea, like we really what they were this. doing. Yeah, yeah, should, yeah. I just know that we shouldn't be watching this. Yeah, we once again, with a minute and forty seconds left in the in the first half, we cut yeah. away. Marv says, "Let's send it to NBC News and Tom Brokaw." Thank you, Marv. We are looking uh, once again at pictures of Al Cowling's cars that makes its way along a freeway in Los Angeles in the South Central part of that area and we are told by the california highway patrol that oj simpson is in that car holding a gun to his head he has been in touch with a police highway dispatcher saying he wants to be taken to his mother he wants to see her Um, but we don't know what the resolution of all of this will be there are nine black and whites most of them from the los angeles county sheriff's department and at least one police helicopter following at this time Al Collings, we're told, is driving. O.J. Simpson is in the back seat with a gun at his head. They fled earlier today when Simpson realized he was about to be arrested for the murder of his ex-wife and the young man who was with him at the time. So now the situation has taken an even more bizarre step as we watch on live television. O.J. Simpson negotiating with a police dispatcher, being followed down a closed freeway by nine sheriff's deputies and most of the Los Angeles news media. Back to you, Marv. All right, Tom, it is obviously... All right, Tom, obviously it's so difficult to follow news of that nature. And as we return to Madison Square Garden... All right, Tom, it is obviously... And then he just stops talking for like a few seconds yeah. <laughs> and it just start and then just starts over. All right, Tom, it's obviously so difficult to follow news of that nature. Um, and again, it's just like, okay, but now you, you've got to go talk about this basketball game that is still currently being played um, and is very important because it's the NBA finals. <laughs> I have a question, man. You know, I know um, actually the Safdie brothers use this like, 
this this shot a lot like the helicopter shot a lot mm. they use it a bunch in um in good time and mm. um and i think they also use it in uh uncut gems yeah yeah but um i have a question for you as like someone that stares at film footage all day like is this like can can you think of other movies that like have used cinematography in this way it it felt like it felt like we were watching a movie like like this this helicopter footage of a car chase felt like oh am i it's like is this like a western like maybe it's because it's so well lit it's in it's in california in los angeles but like just do you know what i mean like it it had a movie quality to it in that like there was a choreography to the whole thing with like the yeah. way it was like it was deck. The set decoration was perfect. The way that they mm-hmm. had all the extras like standing on like the bridge, like yeah. waving at OJ, the way the so, police cars were in like perfect formation. And like, yes, everyone just, just like trailing each other at like just the right time is like, this is a gorgeous piece of cinematography. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Yes. So this with this second update. So in the first update, it was like a tight shot on just the Bronco, and you didn't actually see any of the LAPD police cars in the shot. With this second update, um, the second cutaway, uh, you know, with a couple minutes left in the in the second quarter, um, they now uh, start with a very very far away wide shot, and you get the Bronco. Um, with the the convoy of of nine black and whites trailing behind it, and it is it's it's so cinematic. You see, it's like you know race cars on like a toy racetrack where they're like all in this like perfect like diagonal yeah. formation with like they, the two they, cars trailing they look behind. Like Hot Wheels, do you know what I mean? Because like the they're such tiny little cars. They they literally looks like like little matchbox cars. Yeah, they look like little matchbox cars on like a like a magnetic racetrack. Um, and then, yeah, you see it like going under the, you know, the overpass. Um, it's still like this very far away shot. And then it like zooms, it like slowly, very, very slowly zooms in on just the Bronco. Um, and it is, it's incredible, like breathtaking cinematography, uh, and camera work. Um, the way it like then goes in really, really tight. So you just see the Bronco with nothing around it, just like driving through this like open highway. Um, yeah, it's so so dramatic and and yeah, just dreamlike. It's very like what is that? <laughs> yeah. Um what something I would love to dedicate like a full separate episode to is the uh the helicopter pilot. Oh yeah. Zoe Tur. Yeah. Um am I saying her name right? Hannah yeah, Zoe Tur. Tur. Yeah. Yeah. Um I actually don't know much about her. Uh, I know she is the daughter of NBC White House reporter Katie Turr is is her daughter. It's um, her daughter. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's but Zoe Turr is is trans- transgender. Right. Um, Formerly so, Robert Turr. Uh, right. Now Hannah Zoe Turr, and uh, she is yeah an American broadcast reporter commercial pilot um, yeah and i believe if i'm not mistaken that she was like the one that got the first helicopter footage um of of the of the bronco yeah dude i yeah i would love to have an in-depth conversation about her process of like 
finding OJ. Yeah, because totally. Um, I know in the OJ Made in America documentary, she talks about it being like a. She was like, "Oh, I'm gonna find this motherfucker!" Like, and she just had like such a fascinating perspective on, you know, her own process of transition. Like she mm-hmm. was, she was literally going through her gender transition during this whole event. Yeah, and which of course back in 1994, like, <laughs> not exactly, uh, not exactly you know, like a, a welcome a, environment to be doing a, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, not like like the biggest like career boost. Uh, yeah, but um, she was the to, first to person to that. broadcast and like scoop the slow pe- the the slow speed OJ Simpson chase on June 17th, 1994. Yeah, she's awesome. She's one of my favorite characters in the in the, in the whole doc. So yeah, we should totally like do a do a deeper dive on on her and her story. I wonder if um, she would talk to us. Oh man, maybe. Who the hell knows? That'd be awesome. Yeah, I think I just figured out like my new dream guest. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie Freddie Avila, Zoe Chur. Yeah. Like that is my all-star lineup. <laughs> these are the yeah, these are these Avila, are Avila, our... Zoe Chur. Yeah. And these are the Swish F- FM Hall of Famers folks. And maybe DJ Desal. I don't know. Like, oh my god. There. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know. Oh yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Um yeah. So to as if like things need to be any more like heightened or surreal, uh we cut back to the game and it is basically the middle of a fight. A fucking between, fight. Yeah. Because of course we can't forget it's the New York Knicks in 1984 playing playoff basketball. So there is, yeah, the the immediate image that we're greeted with as we return to the game just abruptly is um, just a scrum of players standing around. Anthony Mason pacing and fuming, absolutely furious. Um, and then they show a replay of what is a, I believe, a tooth-knocking-out elbow to the jaw of uh, of Mason uh, from Hakeem Olajuwon. Um, and then there's just pushing and shoving, mm. Mason getting right up in his face, Riley coming out to to break it up. Um, then we have Starks and Maxwell, start. they start jawing at each other? Yeah, there's technical fouls handed out. Um, yeah, said, it's, just, um, it's just like chaos. <laughs> this started to feel like in a baseball game where a pitcher retaliates by throwing at a batter after the opposing team hits someone. So it was mm-hmm. like, oh, you're going to hit Mace? Like, I'm going to hit Maxwell. And it was just like... Okay, something like this is going to get re- like benches are clearing at this point. This is about to get really, really ugly. Um, yeah. Hey. Yeah. Kenny Kenny Smith gets hit with the T. End of the second quarter. It's forty-eight to thirty-seven. The Knicks are up by uh, eleven points. Um, mm-hmm. Summary yeah, of the half. Some, some great has- plays to close out the half. The Garden is standing, uh, giving a standing ovation at halftime. Sure. Knicks lead it by eleven. Forty-eight yeah. thirty-seven. Patrick Ewing with a a monstrous five blocks in the first half. Incredible. 12 points, seven rebounds. Uh, The Rockets are shooting 15 of 40 for 38%. The Knicks are shooting 23 for 45 for 51%. So, yeah, it's looking promising. Uh, Trying to focus on the game here, of course. Mm. As Marv reminds us with uh, about 30 seconds left in in the first half, uh, you know, sort of following the, the... the the scrum uh, Marv remarks quote these are two very emotional teams uh, lest we forget thank, thank you Marv, Marv. yes um, all right quarter three starts uh, with a Vernon Maxwell three 
Nets 48 to 40. The Knicks are up by eight. Derek Harper, man, ISOing Kenny Smith. He's just like palming the ball. I love how he's just sort of like sizing up Kenny Smith with like the ball mm. in his hand, deciding how he wants to play it. And just that silky jumper, man. He's now six of nine, uh, 54 43. The mm-hmm. Knicks are up by whatever, 11 points. I, I Again, I'm I'm really in and out of consciousness here. It's, it's mm-hmm. There's seven minutes left in the third. Um, we have a Hakeem turnover thrown ahead to Starks. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is a huge finally, play. A trailing Ewing who just absolutely annihilates the rim. Yeah, flushes a monster jam. Um, it's yeah. Knicks are up thirteen at this point, fifty six to forty three. I have in my notes. The Knicks just look like a better team. Period. Like they are actually just outclassing this Houston Rockets squad. They're thriving off the off the energy of yeah, the crowd. Dude, that's why I always like, took issue with the idea that like you know, oh, the Knicks were outmatched and they just lost to a better team. It's like, right. that may be true, but there were definitely moments where it was like, I think then, if even if Houston's a better team, we're still going to win. Like, th- there were moments in the series where I was like, I think we actually might win the series. Like, there's a chance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah keep in mind, if it weren't for that, you know, sort of little meltdown uh, at the end of uh, of game one, or no, game, game three, um, that was when Starks was fouled on the three-pointer. Obviously got two free throws because uh, the rules were bullshit back then. Um, if it weren't for that loss, this would be a closeout game at Madison Square Garden for the right. New York Knicks. Um, uh, and, of course, yeah, NBC never wanted to, to admit that. Uh, I think in the, in the very intro to this game, uh, in the NBA on NBC intro, um, it's not they accost us, uh, you know, in tones. Uh, it appears the guy on the other side of the table holds the superior hand. Yeah, I, w- I was like, for a tied series with the Knicks at home, but yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, they, Dude, they, I definitely they... resent it now with like clear hindsight. I definitely really resented how the media portrayed the Knicks as like clearly outmatched but they have yeah. like a savvy coach it was it was it they yeah, made yeah, it yeah. seem as though like we were not worthy of pat riley that like yeah like they literally we, we, in the we were just he was he was like the he was like the thing that we had in our back pocket like we really weren't that good but thankfully right. we had like this like special we have, like we have one good thing going for us which is the genius of pat riley like, yeah relax i mean he's a great coach and everything but we also have really good player like Right. We wouldn't have made the NBA Finals with a dog shit team. Like yeah. it's just, yeah. Yeah. the The intro uh, has lines such as "with artistry in short supply," uh, referring to obviously the Knicks uh, basketball Give me a break. Uh, and then they they say for no reason whatsoever. They just throw out there. It is unlikely these Knicks will ever be as revered as their predecessors. It's like fuck you, you fucking boomer. Like, what yeah. are you? You're you're telling me like, yeah, you're right. I don't actually like this team. They kind of suck. Yeah, yeah. Fucking right. assholes. Coming out of the commercial break, we have uh, NBC News. Ben, it's oh, our wow. old friend Tom Brokaw. I'm Tom Brokaw, NBC News in New York, and you are looking at live television pictures you know, at uh, dusk South in Southern California. The white Bronco that you see on the freeway going right on your screen contains O.J. Simpson, a fugitive at large, charged with two counts of murder. We believe it is being driven by his lifelong friend, Al Collings, and they are headed toward O.J. Simpson's old neighborhood in Brentwood. 
We believe that Simpson's mother is at his Brentwood estate. Earlier, Simpson told a police dispatcher that he had a gun to his head, that he would hurt himself, but he wanted to see his mother. He's been on the run now for almost eight hours. Since fleeing a home in the San Fernando Valley as police closed in on him to arrest him for two counts of brutal murder, his ex-wife and a young man, shortly after he was told as well by his lawyer that he could face the death penalty. We'll have continuing coverage of this very dramatic episode throughout the evening here on NBC. Now let's go back down to Madison Square Garden. And this time he mentions that O.J. is en route to his Brentwood home where his mother is waiting. Apparently O.J. has told people he intends to harm himself. He is holding a gun to his head. Uh, he is uh, en route to his Brentwood home. He's waiting for, he, he is waiting to go back home to his mother. He's holding a gun to his head. Tom yeah. Brokaw mentions today's events uh, came about after O.J. was charged with the brutal murder of his wife and Ron Goldman. And apparently OJ's attorney told him that he could face the death penalty. Right. Dude, wow. I was not yeah. aware of I know. that detail. I had totally forgotten that myself. But at I the time, due to like... California law, it was yeah, death penalty was very much on the table for OJ Simpson. Do you remember? Yeah, man. Do you remember like the death penalty like being an issue? Like I mean, I believe that it is still an issue in certain states, but yeah, yeah, I think I'm, I think it was just like more something I was aware of and conscious of as a child. Um, I don't know why, maybe it's just like the politics of like growing up in like a Catholic household, like a conservative Catholic household, but it was like one of those issues, like abortion that was just like on the table and like it just seems so fucking inhumane it seems so inhumane like it seems just unconscionable that that is like a thing that is still a part of american law and like the justice system yeah uh it very much is i'm looking uh, at a list here now chris and uh 10 people have been <clears throat> executed um uh in the united states this year um yeah, the what are most the, recent... Do we know the states that are where it's legal? Uh, so, from this list, Texas, Georgia, Texas, Tennessee, with an electrocution, a, an electrocution on February 20th of uh, 2020. Um, yeah, uh, Alabama, Missouri, Texas, and then the most recent three in July of 2020 were, a, uh, were for federal cases, so not state, you know, dependent. But... Uh, yeah, death penalty still still a thing. Uh, it turns out. So, wow, good old, <laughs> good old Swish FM. Uh, yeah, with with the updates. Anyway, back to our game, folks. <laughs> God, yeah. So Dom Broca drops that OJ may be looking at the death penalty, and then throws it back to Marv. Again, like I'm a ten year old child. I'm trying to process that and. It's so bizarre to me, man. Like, young children were watching this game, I don't, like, with or without parents yeah, or adults to right. explain to them, like, what is happening, what that means. Right. Do you remember anyone talking to you about, I, I guess you weren't watching this live, but I definitely remember being old enough to understand, at this point, like, what was happening. I don't yeah. remember the death penalty detail. I do remember 
understanding what the death penalty was. I don't think I remember having like cogent thoughts about it. I don't think yeah. I, I like how could a 10 year old really have like developed thoughts about like whether that's a good or fair thing. Yeah. No, I have really very little recollection of like discussing it with like, you know, my, my parents. I'm pretty sure I was just like, I don't really want to know about that. That's like some fucked up like adult shit. And yeah. I just want to like go about my happy childhood. And Watch I think that sports. my parents were, yeah, my parents Basically. were like more than happy to let me do that. Um, so I definitely like, I mean, you know, there's an argument to be made that they, you know, someone should have like, I don't know, like tried harder to like, but again, I wasn't, it's not like something that I was like seeking out. Ex- yeah. Exposed to and like, and like thinking about and talking about, I'm sure that if I had been like, dad, what is going on? Like, why did this man do this or something like that? He probably would have, you know, had a conversation with me, but I was just like, I don't really want to think about that or talk about that. I'm going to go about my, my regular, you know, 11 year old life. So Tom Brokaw is back on the screen. Yeah, we're back now. Yeah, this is the the, the uh, timeout, the Knicks take with 3.45 remaining in the third. Um, yeah, the Rockets go, had, had gone on a 10-3 run, so they're suddenly only down six. It's 53-59 to 59 Knicks. It felt like, you know, the Knicks were totally in control, but the, the uh, they kind of let the Rockets back into it. So there's a timeout, 3.54 this, left in the third. Is this the cutaway when we're gone? When forever? he's almost... Yeah, when he's yeah. almost back home. Yeah, yeah, great. So this is the big one. <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be away from this game now. I, I, Unbeknownst to yeah. us, of course. Like, yeah, it's still and right. There is no indication of like when they'll be cutting back, how long they're gonna be away from uh, for this. There is no picture in picture. Now, uh, this is where I do remember as a child being a ha- going picture in picture. I remember watching right. the third quarter, and what I remember is that. We had the audio of NBC News narrating what was happening with O.J. Simpson. And in the bottom right corner, there was a small box where the Knicks game was essentially on mute. But you could see yeah. what was happening. Right. So, like, you were getting the audio of O.J. Simpson's life, life like, spiraling out of control mm-hmm. while watching the third quarter of the Knicks game. Right. And keep in mind... You know, we we do not have uh, 50-inch flat-screen TVs uh, with HD, uh, you know, camera footage coming through here. Yeah. You Standard know, def. <laughs> Standard def. And again, this box, it, it, if you got a box at all, was very small on, you know, what for most people was probably not a very large TV um, and with no audio. And of course, the score is not on the screen uh, at, at all times. It's like flashes up every, you know fucking 10 minutes uh some uh it, feel, it felt like so yeah i can't i cannot imagine watching this in real time broca says i'm tom broca in new york you're looking at a ford bronco and oj simpson is almost back home he's in that car we're told that he has a gun his mother is at his brentwood estate and apparently his lifelong friend l collings is driving him there pursued by Los Angeles live television helicopters and most of the Los Angeles County sheriffs and California Highway Patrol units that are in the area. He has been in touch with a police dispatcher. He has said to the police dispatcher, I could hurt myself, I want to see my mother. There are people who are getting out of their cars. All the overpasses have been jammed. Many people were told are sobbing. Others are saying, go OJ, go. There's an enormous amount of affection for this man, but it must be remembered. 
he has been charged with two brutal murders under special circumstances and he could face the death penalty. He remains a fugitive from justice even as we watch him under these circumstances. What happens when he gets to his home, we cannot say. People are standing in the street. They have cleared the news media from the home. The home is just on the left of your picture, lower left-hand corner. He's pulling in there. What happens now? We cannot say. We are going Let's to listen to the chopper pilot for just a few moments. What happens? There appear to be no barricades in front of the house. No. Looks as if he has free access to drive in. There's the ground shot on your right-hand side. That is Rockingham and Ashford, and that is O.J. Simpson's house. And there's someone in the doorway there. Let's watch. Somebody is angry. Somebody's arguing with the driver. Police officers in the doorway, at least three of them there. They're moving the gentleman back, whoever that was. This is a very, very critical time. You can hear the sirens in the background. Jason Simpson, OJ's son, coming out in coming out to the car in front of the Rockingham estate, screaming. I can't tell you if they've gotten out of the truck yet or not. I don't believe they have. I don't believe they have either, Paul. Can the chopper please try to swing back the other way so we can get a view of this? On the ground is uh, NBC's George Lewis. George, what can you see? Can the chopper please swing back the other way so we can get a view of this? One of the NBC news correspondents says, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Yeah, they're just like basically arguing live on the air because it's a fucking, it's just mayhem. No one has any idea what's going on. Tom Brokaw asking NBC's uh, George Lewis on the ground if the police officers in front of Rockingham are, are wearing yeah, bulletproof so vests. Uh, it's a real bizarre scene here at the O.J. Simpson estate. We don't know who's... Uh, he just came screaming by with uh, police in hot pursuit around the corner toward the estate, uh, followed not only by police, but by a whole phalanx of people on motorcycles, uh, bikers who are just curiosity seeking. Yeah, we saw, we saw that, George. Could you see him in the car? Yes, I saw him in the car. I'm not sure that he had a gun pointed toward his head. Um, he came uh, by at a rapid rate of speed and turned down the road toward the estate. Uh, the air here is absolutely filled with helicopters, news choppers, police choppers all over the place, a huge crowd being kept at bay by the Los Angeles Police Department, presumably now trying to negotiate with O.J. Simpson as he's on the grounds of the estate. We cannot see anybody talking to him directly. Somebody greeted him and began what appeared to be a very vigorous argument. He was pulled inside the house by uh, uniformed officers who were in, in the home, obviously. Do you know, George, is Mrs. Simpson, his mother, in the house? We've heard uh, conflicting reports on that, Tom. We heard she was there earlier. And then we heard that the house had been evacuated and that only policemen were inside. Uh, we have no way of confirming either of those accounts at this point. Can you see the white Bronco from where you're standing? I can see it on television from the chopper, but we can't tell whether he's still in the car or not. Actually, your vantage point from, the, uh, from looking at it on TV is better than mine. Yeah. We're being kept uh, some distance from the estate by right. the police, and right. I, I don't have a direct vantage point right now of the Bronco. I'm, I'm walking up the street 
a little bit, but yeah. uh, I still don't have a good line of view. George, I can tell you that I'm watching uh, uniformed officers who are standing in the front doorway, and they do appear to be looking at people in the car, so I don't think that he has exited while our camera was behind a tree. Uh, are all the police officers there in bulletproof vests, and do they have their weapons at the ready? No, they are not in bulletproof vests, and uh, they do not have their weapons drawn. There's a, there's a mixture of Los Angeles policemen, California Highway Patrolmen, and uh, policemen from some of the outlying suburbs, and uh, they do not appear to be preparing for any kind of standoff. Yeah, again, it's very possible that uh, all of America could have witnessed a police killing live on television. Um, like, they had no idea what was go- what was going to happen. They knew that OJ had a gun. They knew that his house was surrounded by police officers, armed to the teeth, snipers, you know, uh, fucking in trees, like... There was a, a, like a 50-50 shot that they were going to air uh, an execution on television Dude, to catch, all of America. Did you catch the snipers in the 30 for 30 doc? Y- yep, in the, uh, in the like, fucking leafy uh, camouflage. Yeah. I was like, what is this, Vietnam? Like, Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Just like running across the street in full like hunting uh, like tree branch and leaf uh, camouflage carrying a fucking like AK-47 sniper rifle. I mean, I don't know if that's the actual name of the gun, but it was a very large-looking gun. Brokaw mentions that O.J. had been beating uh, his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and recently stalking Nicole Brown, his ex-wife, because um, they'd been unable to work out a reconciliation. Yeah. At another point, they mention that Ron Goldman, and I don't know if we've talked about this, Chris, um, specifically, but they mentioned that Ron Goldman was 25. Um which is so, like, just unimaginably young. Right next to me is uh, Ron Goldman, a 23-year-old tennis pro. Give him a big hand for coming down here. All right. And down at the end is Anthony Paduano. Paduano, a 24-year-old bartender. Welcome, Anthony. Good to have you here. All right. Guys, here's the deal. The guy with the most hearts at the end of the show is crowned King Stud in a fabulous ceremony with, with little children and lily pads. It's, it's really beautiful. Uh, and uh, you also are entitled to a fabulous date with uh, the woman, and we pay for it. Perfect. Perfect? All right. Ron, yeah. we'll start with you. Uh, you make a good impression on the phone over with a woman? Uh, I guess so. Um, I don't like to talk a lot on the phone, so I'm kind of blunt and to the point. Just get, let's get it going. Be ready at 8. I'll be there. Boom. Be there. Okay. Yeah. All right. We asked the ladies... What they, what their impressions were of you when they talked to you on the phone, Ron. And here's what they said. One of them said, rough, wild, and oh, so sexy. (laughs) Second lady said, this guy is mucho macho. Third lady said, "Uh uh-oh, I got a date with Polly (laughs) Shook. Uh... Uh-oh. I've no, got come on. Say it right. Uh-oh. Got a date with Polly Shore. Uh, uh, obviously, at the time, I didn't think of 25 as young. I was like, oh, he's an adult. He's right. a grown man. He's a man. 25 is, like, just out of college. That is so... Like, he was a child. He was basically like a, like a kid. It's hard to make new friends. And people you can really confide in in a short time. And Ron was that kind of person. Very trustworthy. Very reliable. If he said he was going to be at your place at one o'clock, he would be there at five o. He was a uh, a warm guy, uh, 
very open, very open-minded. He had a, a big heart, but I think the most noticeable thing about him was the fact that he was a real person. He was also a hard worker and waited tables at Mezzaluna restaurant to pay the rent. But his friends remember Ron as the life of the party. His playful nature is captured in this innocent game of truth or dare. I love Gershon! He didn't really have too many inhibitions. He didn't mind dropping his pants in a moonlike effort to the street at 9 o'clock at night, so he didn't have any inhibitions. Is that what he was doing out on the tree? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It, it never stops being terrible. Like, yeah. I mean, nothing ever sounds good enough, but it's like wrong place at the wrong time. He was being a good Samaritan, basically, like... Uh, Nicole Brown's mother forgot her eyeglasses at the restaurant where he works. And he was like, oh, I live near the Browns. I can, I'll bring the glasses on uh, after I get off work. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I believe that like OJ was certainly aware of Ron beforehand. Um, yeah. I think that he did have like a friendship, you know, possible relationship with Nicole. That he was handsome made it easy for him to meet girls. His daily routine often brought him to this coffee shop, and it was here that Ron's life would forever be changed when his friends first introduced him to Nicole Simpson. There has been so much said and so much speculation about your two friends, Ron and Nicole. Were they having an affair? Were they not having an affair? No, they weren't having an affair. Simple, clear-cut answer. A lot has been said about him driving that Ferrari. We all have. flashy Ferrari. We all have. You drove it too? Mm-hmm. Ron didn't even have a car, so it was almost like a favor. Nicole had two vehicles. She had her Cherokee and the Ferrari. And the Ferrari's, you know, a hot car, so if he ever needed to borrow a car or something, she was that type of person. She was really warm and giving. Ron Goldman was also the type to do a favor for a friend, like dropping those glasses off at Nicole's condo the night of the murders. It was an act that would cost Ron Goldman his life. It's not like he was just a complete stranger that was totally in the wrong place at the wrong time, but I can't imagine that, you know, OJ's, you know, plan, if he had a plan uh, to kill Nicole that night, like, necessarily included Ron. He he just, like, happened to be there, and he was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get you, too. Like... Um, because I know you and you're part of why I am, you know, a homicidal maniac, uh, because you've been seeing my wife. So there you go. And like, but again, yeah, it wasn't, if he hadn't gone to Nicole's house that night, like, it's not like OJ would have like gone to his house to murder him. Like, I can't see that being the case. So yeah, I don't know. And then Broca um, updates us, Ben. For those of you who've been watching the game, the third quarter has just ended 61 to 61. The Knicks and the Rockets at Madison Square Garden before the series moves on to Houston. We'll be getting back to that when we have a resolution of this highly dramatic and compelling scene that we are watching now coming up in Los Angeles at 8 o'clock in the evening. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for- Thanks, Tom, for that update. Um, so you're telling me that uh, the Knicks were up by 13 points in an absolutely critical game five, uh, but now the game is tied. Uh, <laughs> we don't know why or how um, because we've missed the last five minutes of a- of game action. Um, we are literally it's, it's a, watching. It's a tie game going yeah. into the fourth quarter of game five. 
uh, and I'm watching a police standoff. <laughs> we are watching uh, a hostage negotiation Angeles. on TV, like a live hostage negotiation on TV. Completely yeah. batshit insane. Uh, the score is now 65 to 61. We are in the fourth quarter. It's like... Yeah. Yeah, Tom says, we'll be getting back to that when we have a resolution to this highly dramatic and compelling scene. So, okay. I guess as soon as OJ is killed by the cops, we'll we'll cut back to the game? Like, I don't... Yeah, or... (laughs) I I don't know. Yeah, I I just like... um, Yeah, he says at one point... Appears to be a soft summer evening... The scene that is playing out that no scriptwriter, no dramatist could possibly conceive. And yeah, the live TV is a complete mess. Uh, there's like just, you know, everyone's just trying to figure out like camera angles and, um, and you know, people are like talking over each other. Um, there was a great line at one point. Uh, Brokaw says, the serenity of this Brentwood neighborhood has been shattered, which I thought was... Uh, very poignant. Um, yeah, so now Houston's up. We're in the fourth quarter. Houston's up by four, 65-61. Um, thanks to Brokaw's update, we're still not back at the game, though. In my head, I'm just imagining, like, if I had been a child watching this live, I would probably, like, most likely be in tears. I, yeah. I would I would be, like, panicking and frantic that my team was letting this game slip away, <laughs> and be, I had clear, no... You would be... You would be crying and panicking and, and panicking and being frantic, not for humanitarian oh, no. reasons. No, not for O.J. Simpson and and, no. and the, uh, the plight of the of the yeah. of the families victim uh, victims families. No, no, no. It would be because my Knicks were letting um, a a huge lead slip away in a crucial finals game, and I wouldn't even have an ability to watch the game. It's a Friday um, night, and Tom Brokaw has just ruined it for you, Ben Craw. I mean, my I would just be like, I don't know what I would do. I would, I'm I'm in some ways thankful that I yeah. uh, I I didn't experience it in real time. Um, my, my, I mean, I'm more like it's more like I'm relieved that my father didn't have to like go through that and console me. Um, God knows he had enough of that to do uh, later in the series, which we'll be getting to. But um, So before I forget, and just because we're doing things chronologically, during the uh, 2016 NBA Finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavs, mm-hmm. um, this was the same year, 2016, that the O.J. Simpson Made in America uh five-part documentary was premiering on ESPN. ESPN, Mm -hmm. of course, the same network that was airing the NBA Finals. Um, During that broadcast, uh, Jeff Van Gundy was covering the game with Mike Breen. So they run like an ad for OJ Made in America during uh, during the game. You know how they'll mm. have like a little splice thing like on, on the bottom third of the screen, kind of like plugging mm-hmm. it with a graphic, whatever. Sure. So... It's like, you know, this Sunday night at 8 p.m., part three of O.J. Made in America, whatever. So Jeff Van Gundy, just off the cuff, shares the most ridiculous story. Basically, so, of course, Jeff Van Gundy, future Knicks coach, was at this time in 1994 an assistant under Pat Riley. Mm-hmm. And um, he tells this story during the, the Cavs-Warriors game. 9 Eastern on ABC. Mike, I'm always reminded when I was with, an assistant with the Knicks in 94, the OJ chase took place in Game 5. Game 5 of the finals between the Rockets and the Knicks. 
As Green blocked the foul from behind. And we ended up losing to the Rockets. That summer, Pat Riley always went back out to L.A. Uh, he had a house there. And he ran into the driver of the car, A.C. Cowings, at a car wash. And they both were getting their cars detailed. And A.C. Cowings knew Coach Riley peripherally, waved him over, and proceeded to tell him the story of why they were driving so slow was O.J. wanted to hear the end of the game on the radio before he pulled in. And when Coach Riley told us that story, I was like mesmerized by, you know, what really goes on. Like I could just see him having the gun to his head saying, turn up the radio, AC, so I can hear the last few minutes. That is incredible. It is. That was a bizarre night at Madison Square Garden. Everybody was aware of what was going on. Plus a final now, game. I have another detail, Ben. This one is kind of crazy. I don't know if you've ever heard this or read this before. But I think I know what you're about to say, but yeah, yeah. I was going to drop this one on you, but go ahead. When OJ was in the car, he called the LAPD, right? Uh-huh. And he talked to the police detective, you know, negotiated like everything. I want to go see my mom. I want to go back to Brentwood, whatever. Yeah. Before he called the LAPD, he called someone else. Yeah. The person he called, Ben, was Bob Costas. OJ tried to call me from the back of the Bronco. He had he had a cell phone, which I did not at that time. So he calls my house in St. Louis. You can't expect him to be really thinking that I'm not going to be home. And no one was home. So the phone rings and rings. He doesn't get me. He has the number of the studio because we did the basketball show from the same studio where we did the football show. So he's got the number. But there's nobody there because during the finals, we're doing it from the site. So we're all at the garden. So finally, an engineer who's the only person there, a tech guy, answers the phone. And as OJ later told me, the conversation goes something like this. Is Bob Costas there? No, he's at Madison Square Garden. I have to speak to Bob Costas. Well, he's not here. I got to speak to him right now. Who's calling? OJ Simpson. Yeah, right. Click. Oh, my. The guy, the guy hangs oh my. up. Now, I don't know anything about this until many, many months later. I'm in Houston before this happens. The Knicks win game five, they're up 3-2. The Rockets win game six on Sunday, and we got to wait till Wednesday for game seven in Houston. I'm in the uh, hotel on Monday, and a woman from Time Magazine calls and says, we hear that O.J. Simpson tried to call you from the back of the Bronco. And I answer truthfully, I think, at the time, no, that didn't happen. The whole conversation lasts less than a minute. Hang up the phone, forget about it. Now a few months go by. He's in the L.A. County Jail awaiting trial. It doesn't start till January. It's November of 94. And he gets word to me that he would like to see me next time I'm in L.A. So little side note, Robert Kardashian picks me up at the hotel, takes me to the L.A. County Jail. A.C. Cowlings is there. It's me, Kardashian, A.C. Cowlings on the other side of the glass with O.J. And then maybe 10 minutes into the conversation, Cowlings says, you know, we tried to call you from the back of the Bronco. I'm like, I'd heard that, but I didn't think it was true. And then O.J. explains, as he put it, this is kind of. OJ's lexicon. They were dogging me, Bob. They were dogging me. I needed to speak to somebody who knew that I was a good guy. So I guess he thought that I would be a character witness for him on the air. Now, if we had actually hooked up, I would have had to have asked him questions. I would have had to have said, OJ, did you do it? He would have said, no. If you didn't do it, why did you run? These aren't the actions of an innocent man. 
you're my friend. I'd love to give you the benefit of the doubt, but what's going on here? And then I would have had to have been like the policeman who you've heard on the recordings, trying to convince him, OJ, put the gun down. Surrender peacefully. You'll get good representation. Your side of the story will be told. And if that had happened, that would have been, not because of me, anybody, would have been one of the most memorable moments in television history. If they made a list, men walking on the moon, JFK assassinated, whatever, it made a list. That would have been on that list. And it was only by a quirk that it didn't happen. And that day in the jail cell, uh, or at the jail, in the visiting area in 94, is the last time that I've seen or spoken to OJ. Ben, you've heard, like, the term uh, in, like, filmmaking and screenwriting, like, an unreliable narrator. I am officially, at this point, a very unreliable narrator in that, like, I'm emotionally exhausted. Like, I I don't really care about this game. Like, of course I care about this game, but it's just very hard for me to wear my, like, podcast analyst guy hat uh, right now because my focus is fucking scattershot man yeah yeah i mean i think we should really kind of just breeze through this uh, especially considering what, where yeah, what happens here so <laughs> yeah we get back i mean it's 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 kind of hilarious because after cutting away from oj they return to the game 656 remaining in the fourth Knicks are up by one seventy one to 72 uh marv says it is difficult to make the transition uh again marv uh Thanks, thank you marv. for that um uh very insightful commentary um we get exactly seven seconds of gameplay and then there's a timeout <laughs> and they go back to commercial this is when chuck scarborough cuts in for a little news for new york update um guess what it's about this is an update from news for new york Good evening, I'm Chuck Scarborough. As you've been witnessing, the bizarre drama surrounding O.J. Simpson gets wilder by the hour. Police closed in on O.J. Simpson on the grounds of his estate. This is a live picture. The California Highway Patrol says O.J. Simpson is in a Bronco there with a gun. A friend of his, Al Cowlings, is believed to be in the car with him or he has gotten out recently. Simpson has been on the run this morning, since this morning when he was supposed to surrender to police on murder charges. We'll have more for you later. This and then we're back. Um, the Rockets ended the third on an 18-5 to run, uh, which uh, got them back in the game. Uh, Patrick Ewing is having no a monster big game. No big deal, Ben. Like, uh, yeah, for- fortunately, like, we, were, we were able to see all of that. You know, Fortunately, we were able to really focus on that. Yeah. Um, there's five minutes left Can't now. I believe it's- all those Rocket plays that, you know, during that 18-5 run, man, like so yeah. many momentum-swinging plays, I'll never forget. So actually, here's the crazy thing. Um, I believe I read that this was because of like a, a 2006 DVD that like NBA TV released. Yep. Um, but there is a, in fact a NBA um, Entertainment. I think it's called NBA Entertainment. Sure. Um, released uh, the full uh, broadcast of this game, but without any of the OJ material, um, which means that, um, and this is the. Uh, the version of the game that we pulled uh, initially pulled off the uh, the Pick and Roll UK uh, YouTube account. Shout out to those guys. Which, by the way, we should briefly mention their YouTube account is back. It's active, folks. Oh, great. Um, if anyone didn't know that, uh, they are uh, once again posting um, old games on their YouTube account. Check them out. So Pick and Roll UK. Uh, yeah, very very uh, welcome and, and exciting news. Um, but uh, but so there's a there's a version of this game um, that just has the game footage with the broadcast with Marvin Matt on the call, 
Um, and then it has all of the the game when NBC had cut away, when they were either, you know, full on cut away to OJ or the picture in picture with the NBC News OJ audio. So there's a version of this game where you can watch um, that lost footage um, in full screen, um, but you don't have any of the audio. But weirdly, I, I don't know if you if you ever like went yeah. to check this out. Yeah. You do hear that Marv's mic is still live. So, so it is the eeriest, weirdest fucking thing for like eight minutes or something like that of gameplay. We get basketball with no commentary except just the occasional clearing of the throat of Marv Albert. Um, and it's just like one of those things where it's like, oh, God. Like, I don't know why it like thrills me to like discover that and to be like, wow. Like, if you want everyone you can go back and watch the <laughs> eight minutes yeah, uh with, like, with no play-by-play commentary except marv clearing his throat every few seconds it's like the hot mic scenario where it's like yeah oh, he didn't know the mic was on he was just it's so like, so mumbled some, like terrible stuff to himself or just like god yeah yeah so crazy, it's man. so eerie and so strange um but anyway, yeah. So yeah, it's still it's like a very tight game. Um, one thing I noted at this point is just that uh, I, I realized something at this point. With I was like, oh my god, it's a fucking one point game in the fourth with five minutes left. And I realized that every single game, of course, this NBA Finals is remembered as the, you know the OJ Finals. It's remembered mm-hmm. as the finals where neither team ever uh, reached a hundred points, which is true. Um, it's remembered for Hakeem Olajuwon's performance. It's remembered for John Starks two for eighteen in Game Seven. Spoiler alert. Um, but one thing about this series is that every single game was gut-wrenchingly close. Yep. There wasn't a single game. Obviously, some of them ended with like a you know eight-point or six-point margin, or you know there weren't all like buzzer beaters. But every single game was like down to the wire. Like every single game was like white knuckle. Um, there wasn't a single comfortable win for either team, um, which is like kind of amazing um and and remarkable to me that like sure it's remembered as like the bad basketball like whatever defensive uh slog fest but like every game was incredibly tense and you know to people like sickles like you and you and i chris uh extremely thrilling um but anyway uh yeah rockets are up three with uh like four minutes to go. Um, Elijah one is blocked by Ewing at one point. Uh, oh, we get a uh, <laughs> as if uh, as if we needed this, Chris. We get a little Miller genuine draft uh, genuine moment. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. If 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 we want to just throw that into the mix, one forty two twenty five. Like I haven't uh, we, been through we, enough. Yeah, we hear the Miller music, um, and uh, basically any last shred of sanity that I'm still clinging to is is fully obliterated um, at this point. Um, of course, the uh, the Miller genuine draft, genuine moment, is uh, when Willis Reed went down with an injury in Game 5 of the 1977, uh, 1970 Finals. Um, awesome to remember that. Um, uh, at, at least that was a, a Finals that the Knicks ended up winning. So, you know, not, not an, an incredibly traumatic memory um, compared to most MGD uh, moments. But... Um, but yeah, uh, that was a fun little <laughs> little Tripped thing. Really, I mean, just the music alone. Like, I don't even care what the highlight is. Just the music. I'm just like, oh god, not trauma. not this, not trauma. right now. Yeah, it's please trauma. no, please no. I've been through it. Um, John Starks hits a hits a huge, huge three, three with two fifteen left, putting the Knicks up by one. Absolutely clutch. That kind of like puts them over the hump. Um, Herrera, two minutes to go. Rejected yeah. by Ewing. Absolutely huge. The next play, the ball is thrown ahead to Harper, who's fouled at the rim. Then we have a uh, Robert Ory miss. The ball is tossed ahead to Mason for the flush. That's a huge sequence. There's Ory. 
Harper gets it down, and Mason gives the Knicks a five-point lead. Corey for three. He's blocked by Mason. Oakley, Oakley. somehow dives into the stands, saving the ball. Uh, Starks collects it, throws down to wide open Mason, who was cherry picking after he had blocked the three by Ori, and he goes in for the big, like the iconic, yeah, tongue out, Flush. legs wide open, yeah, one hand nasty jam. The this, garden is alive. Yeah. The Knicks are up by five. The story of that play is the Oakley rebound, just out hustling, out muscling everyone for the rebound, and then the pass, yep. the the pass yep. up ahead. Yeah, he doesn't fling it. It's crazy. He's like out of control, falling out of bounds. But instead of just like flinging the ball like over his head to whoever might be there, Oakley has the wherewithal to, as he's falling out of bounds in midair, do like a shovel pass. Almost like a sky hook pass to John Starks. Like he's like falling out of bounds and just like flips it over his head to John Starks. Yeah. But it's not just like a, like a wild fling. Like it's a very deliberate directed pass to Starks who's there. And he's able to throw it wide, uh, uh, way down to uh, to Mason, who's wide open. Um, yeah, Knicks go on to win this game, Chris. Mm. Um, it's um, yeah. There's a couple, you know, sort of last minute plays. The Knicks end on a nine-one run. I made note uh, of uh, Sam Cassell fouling out, and all of Madison Square Garden is singing "Hit the Road, Jack." Oh uh, yeah, that was yeah. Sweet. That made me very, very happy. Yep. yep. Marv says this one is headed back to Houston with the Knicks up three games to two. Um, yeah, man, I'm I'm glad this one's over. Um, there are a couple. I don't know how we did it, but scary we scary moments at the end of the game. Honestly, in the final minute or two, actually, uh, when in, Mason, in, Mason Mason throws the inbounds pass away. I don't. Who cares, man? I don't. I don't even want to talk about it. I, mean, I like. I'm. Yeah. I'm done with basketball analysis at this point. <laughs> um, um, yeah, there's a standing ovation for the Knicks at the end of the game. Um, yeah, Knicks win 91-84 to to take a 3-2 series lead. Um, and just one big, big picture sort of thought that I had as this game wrapped up is just how strange it is that the... Basically, this game, June 17th, 1994, the O.J. Simpson White Bronco game, is the peak, the pinnacle of the Knicks franchise. Um, At least the franchise history from 1973, which is, I believe, 47 years ago, according to my math, almost a half century ago. Basically, the entire modern history of the franchise that we love. this was the the best moment. This was the the highest that they've ever reached, the 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 most glory they've ever attained. Um, that celebration at the end of Game Five, going up three two, and and not like like I, we felt good after after that. Like it was like oh sh- like I remember the next morning waking up and you know hearing about what had happened. I remember hearing about Patrick Ewing's uh, NBA Finals record, eight blocks um, in Game 5, and just thinking to myself, like, oh, wait a minute, the Knicks actually won? They're up, you're telling me they're up 3-2? Um, and it was like, we could, we're actually going to maybe win the NBA Finals. Like, I, I, like, never let myself believe it until that next morning. Um and just feeling like, holy shit, like, I can't believe they're actually going to 
do it. Like I, I was just like, I think they're going to do it because they had looked so good and so dominant and their defense was so strong and they still had two games left. And yeah, I knew that they were both in Houston, but it was like, I don't think that the Rockets can, can beat us. Like, I think that we have this team's number. I think that, I mean, Hakeem Olajuwon had like a, a solid game, but he wasn't like unstoppable. They bottled him up for like much of this game, just like they had bottled him up for much of the, of the previous four games. And it was like, I don't, I, I think that like, they're going to do this. Like it really, I remember so vividly, like the palpable feeling I mean, of confidence we winning the series three games to two. Like, why shouldn't we expect to win? Like, of course. Yeah. We and like, and exactly like in our fashion, it wasn't like some crazy, you know, shenanigan, like last second heroics. It was just like, no, no, no. We just play incredibly tight fourth quarter defense. And we just kind of like slowly like choke this team to death. And like, that's, that's what we do. And like, that's what I, I don't see how we can't just continue doing that. Um, and, um, yeah, it, I just like, uh, that's, <laughs> that's the best I've ever felt about this team, um, in my life. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And it's just really, really weird to think like June 17th, 1994 was, was the top of the, of the mountain for us <laughs> as Knicks fans. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, um, closing thoughts here uh we'll wrap up our now two hour and plus hour podcast but like i i don't rem i don't remember like i i did not know whether the knicks won or lost this game oh really Um, yeah i did not and Mm. i think the oj like i uh, what i remember of this game is oj simpson Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, honestly, part of that is just because it's been 20 something years that I just hadn't had the occasion to painfully sit and rewatch these games. So I didn't think about like, did we win game four? What does that mean for game five? And what about mm-hmm. game six and seven? So I wasn't like, doing, that's interesting. I, I intentionally wasn't doing the math in my head. Right. But, like um, I didn't remember the exact order of games one through four, but I like very vividly like like had locked in my memory like oh yeah we were up three two in that series like I'll never I guess, forget yeah I guess now that I think about it we were up three two but um but this game was always OJ like this this yeah. game will always be OJ to me it sure it sure will be it uh, yeah it was the night that that OJ came into all of our lives <laughs> I mean like that's the thing like anyone who like maybe wasn't following the story exactly up until that point. Like that was the moment that it was like, Oh, okay. This is going to be the story of, of like the century. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And that we can, I think we can say that like has bared out, right? Like, I mean, it was the trial of the century, right? It was the trial Um, of the century. It was, I mean, obviously like lots of things have happened that have shaped history since then. But like in terms of just, purely american stories like just simply like the story of like america and race and celebrity and like all the things that are just very like specific to our country only i kind of feel like it's on its own level Um, race celebrity domestic violence police brutality uh discrimination law like like, the legal system the judicial system the criminal justice system athletics everything capitalism sports yep capitalism money power yeah yeah all of of the themes that patriarchy every theme that they make a movie about this one had it yeah 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 
Dude, um, that's uh, that's it for me. I, that that that's all I got. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Holy I'm still shit. trying to process this one, man. Yeah, uh, I can't believe it's it's actually over. That we're at the finish line. Obviously, it's not. The thing over is, because we not, still have two games. But it's not I don't over know at all. The yeah. thing is, it's not over at all. And yeah. this uh, is this actually in could some way be that's a relief. Just the beginning. In some way, that's yeah. a relief for me to know that like. We will always have OJ. We'll always be discussing OJ in some way or another. Mm -hmm. And we still have games six and seven in Houston. And uh, that that ought to end real well. That ought to end real well for us, Ben. Yeah, luckily it's only uh, rosy memories from here. Um, Our spirits will be lifted, as basketball always does, as we know. It will lift our spirits, and it will distract us from all of our worries and troubles. Ben, don't you watch too much of that bubble this weekend. Remember <laughs> to spend some time with your family. I know you're uh, you're obsessed with this bubble. You're watching bubble TV all the time. But try, try to yep. remember that there are other important things. Yeah, fear not, listeners. We will have plenty of bubble content uh, <laughs> probably at some point in the year 2021. That's right. So if you're looking for updates, news, and analysis from all the bubble action, uh, we will have that to you Um fresh in a few months all right till next time man stay safe stay stay healthy you as well my friend and uh as i like to say a pleasure as always you've been listening to switch